0: Please be seated. Good evening to you. Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, this evening, Sunday nights, Genesis to Revelation, and currently in the book of Luke. My wife mentioned to me that it was a year ago, I think, uh, today, that um, California and whatever else uh, stopped the gatherings and services and all of that, so... And uh, here we are. Uh, none of us were, um, none of us were killed trying to get toilet paper or rice or beans or vodka or whatever. Just kidding on that. Uh, but it is amazing what the Lord has brought us through, and in His grace, and and I trust that even as this is moving to whatever end, only God knows, that we can look back and see how much we've learned in in the last year. So much to be thankful for and uh, uh, certainly a lot of gratitude for what could be taken for granted. We pick things up in Luke chapter 14 in verse 25 where Luke tells us that now great multitudes and so not a great multitude singular, a great multitude would be sufficient for me. But now great multitudes, plural, went with Jesus, and he turned to the, and he turned and said to them, so a massive crowd is following him at this point, and uh, he's teaching, he is uh, uh, confronting the Jewish religious leaders with their misunderstanding of God and their misrepresentation uh, of God, and the crowds are getting larger and larger. But Jesus is not impressed with a crowd, it is a crowd just per se, uh, the sheer number of people I would be. Um, if I was a rabbi, I would look and say, wow, multitudes, we've got momentum on our side. Don't say anything that's going to mess this up. And uh, in the United States of America, so often we determine uh, the health of a crowd or the health of a church based upon numbers and budget, as it's so crassly put uh, within uh, 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 Christendom nickels and noses. And so often a church's uh, success or um, its effectiveness is measured in that kind of a way. And we live in an age where pastors will get fired for being truly effective for God, but they don't meet the nickels and noses. Uh, side of things in terms of how our culture, being so materialistic, also carries that over to the spiritual realm and says this is a mark of a truly spiritual church. A church or a crowd that is truly spiritual is one where God is exalted, number one, and then it, it is, uh, its its value, it, its uh, significance, so to speak, is based upon uh, the quality of disciple that uh, it produces, because that's what the church exists to do, is to make disciples in the world. That's what the Great Commission is about. And so when Jesus sees a crowd, he knows that any crowd, especially at this point in his public ministry, now, not the crowd after he was crucified, there wasn't much of a crowd. But here there's a big crowd. And he knows that crowds are made up of a lot of different kinds of people. And a lot of different kind of motives for following him. Many of which are not only unworthy of him, but motives that will fail the individual person if they endeavor to follow Jesus under that motivation. So Jesus speaks to this crowd and he says to them, if anyone comes To me, that is to become uh, my follower, to become a disciple, a learner after me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and in case you get this far in the verse and you're saying, yeah, no problem, no problem, no problem, uh, he goes on and says, yes, and his own life also, he... Probably might not potentially be my disciple. That's what he says. He said, He cannot be my uh, disciple. And so, Jesus here, uh, very, very upfront about what it means to follow him. He doesn't carry anyone along like some religious systems do. And they say, all right, we'll we'll reveal the first layer to you at this level of your investigation and then the next layer and the next layer. And then after some years or months, you find out what the whole thing is all about. Jesus lets us know completely up front what is required in order to follow Him and be His disciple um, in, uh, in this world. And I've always appreciated that about Jesus. He is very, very uh, up front. And so the first thing that's required is of anyone that has a hope of, of following him in, in the fallenness of the, this world, the greatness of our own uh, selfishness and our flesh, is that we have to love Jesus supremely over everything else in life and everyone else in life. Jesus is not saying that we are to literally hate our mother and our father uh, and, and our sisters and our brothers and wife and children and so forth. Uh, Jesus quoted the law of Moses that declared that we are to honor our father uh, and our, our mother. It would be a, a violation of his own teaching to uh, interpret it uh, in that, that kind of a way. Jesus calls us to love everyone. What he is saying is that our r- relationship with him is to have the preeminence over every other relationship in our lives. Our relationship with him is to be the most significant uh, relationship in our lives and our love for all others to be a hatred by comparison. And that's the way in the ancient world, certainly among uh, the Jews, they used a lot of comparative in order to to make their points. And so that we're to love Jesus supremely over every other relationship uh, in life And we are to be loyal to Him above all of these other relationships in life. Because uh, family relationships can be a great hindrance to us following the Lord. There are very, very few Christians in the world that follow Jesus Christ with the uh, approval of their families, the complete approval, whether a husband, whether a wife, whether children, whether mother, or whether father. And so uh, the importance of that relationship being number one. And again, uh, unless that's in place, he cannot be my disciple. It's just incredibly uh, strong. So, uh, and, and up front. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so, uh, it's required of us as disciples that each of us are going to have a cross that is required to bear in order to be his disciple. And your cross is not your wife or your husband uh, or your boss or anything like that. As people say, well, they're just, this is just my cross to bear, or some kind of a physical Uh, condition, Jesus is saying that, uh, and it would have been very well understood by his audience here uh, in that Roman context, in in, uh, the Roman government, when they executed someone for committing a capital crime, execution occurred by crucifixion. And the condemned criminal would then carry his cross to the place of uh, his execution, carry it typically through the city as a warning, a deterrent to everybody else uh, in the city that might be thinking about committing the same crime. And the Romans would have the, the uh, condemned criminal carry his cross for the purpose of communicating to the entire world that his life was now completely submitted to the law of, of rome and uh, in bearing our cross spiritually we're communicating that we are willing to anytime uh, jesus calls us to do something anytime we see any command in his word or the command of god the father that we take and we say no to our flesh no to our selfishness we die to that side of ourselves in order to say yes to what He uh, commands us to do. And that takes a moment by moment, day by day, lifelong death of the flesh in order for that uh, to happen. The flesh will not cooperate in its own execution. It simply will not. It will fight every day for a chance to maintain control of our lives. And here Jesus is saying what will be required in order to follow him will be uh, that saying yes to God and saying no to myself, however much it's required as we see uh, his commandments. And then the degree to which we're to do that to the degree even to the point of death. I don't know how many of you... uh, I I hope you didn't, but I don't know how many of you watched uh, the video of the Coptic uh, Egyptian Christians who, a whole line of them, I don't know how many brothers they were, 20, 12, whatever lined up, and they all progressively as they were standing there in the waters of the Mediterranean Sea, each one of them at the same moment had their uh, their throats cut and bled out on the sand. And for simply being Christians at the hands of, of Muslims. And, uh, and yet, they said that what was being, there was a murmur as they, as they had the recording of the whole event and the video that they put out to then try and intimidate the world. And then when somebody was able to get the video and turn it up, it was these Christians encouraging one another to stay strong to the point of death and not to deny Christ. And that's... That's the call, no matter what it is. You may say, you know, from the comfort of a room like this and say, boy, I don't know if I could do that in that circumstance. In that circumstance, God would give you and I what we would need in that moment if we wanted it. But there would be a willingness to be able to say yes to Him and no to anything else to the point of death. And so bearing our cross is determined to determine that we it would be better to die than to live for someone else other than Christ or something else other than uh, Christ. And so here no one can accuse Jesus of, of soft-selling, what it means to follow Him um, in the world. And so this is what He calls us to. Again, at the end of verse 27, uh, if this is not in place, He cannot be uh, my uh, disciple, and, uh, and uh, the, just the, the beauty and the strength of it. Now, Jesus isn't just saying a hard thing uh, to say a hard thing. He knows that this is the kind of commitment that will be required in order to follow Him. How many Christians do you know from the day that you became a Christian, especially if you've walked for decades? How many of them are still walking with the Lord? I can tell you it is, uh, I would guess at 10% in my own life. I don't, I don't say uh, who's on their way to heaven or not on their way to heaven, but I mean walking with the Lord like they did when they were first saved. And, uh, and it's a, a failure to, at the onset, to count this kind of a cost that will be required to follow Him. Because this kind of a commitment is required, and it will always uh, be tested and then uh, notice Jesus I- as he finishes up these. Uh, demands of discipleship he didn't say now I want everybody's head to be bowed and I want uh, you know the worship team to come out and play softly in the background and we'll dim the lights and try and produce some kind of an emotional experience for everyone and then while everybody's emotionally excited about Jesus then get them to commit to the Lord before they change their mind there's none of that here and Jesus goes on, and he not only doesn't do that, but he lays out the demands, the requirements for, uh, for following him. And then, uh, rather than calling for an, an immediate decision or an emotional decision, he calls on every one of his listeners, both then and now, to count the cost on whether they're willing to make that kind of a commitment to him or, or not. Calls on him to count the cost. He said, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first, count the cost, uh, whether he'll have enough to uh, finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation, he's not able to finish, and all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to. Uh, to uh, finish. And so he uses the illustration here of importance of counting the cost, the illustration of a man building a tower. And so nobody starts to build the building and says, oh, I have the funding for the first uh, uh, floor. And it's a 30-story building. No, you, you secure all that is required to finish uh, the building in order to uh, in, in order to be able to uh, finish it, because if you start the building, get the foundation laid, run out of money, then it 's a very, very poor reflection upon the builder, even in a secular uh, realm. Everybody looks at it and goes yeah that 's the building so and so started, and now it 's just making a mess of of the neighborhood and uh, This is the mark of of a Christian who starts as a Christian announces to all of their friends, all of their family members that they're a Christian, and then after some months or years, then they cease following Him. And, and then uh, that our life then becomes a mockery before the world. Hey, Jim, weren't you the guy that was so Jesus-freaking and gung-ho and everything? And, and then now look at you, what you're doing uh, with us. Imagine, imagine having a neighborhood where you had a whole bunch of these kind of places that were started and stopped, and what a blight it would be on the neighborhood. Everybody would drive through it and say, I wouldn't want to live in that neighborhood. It's an absolute blight. And that's the blight that Jesus wants to avoid related to Christianity, so that the world doesn't see so many people start and stop And then it becomes a terrible reflection, not only upon the person who starts, but upon the Lord Himself. It's like He gets these people to start, but He can't bring them to the end. And so it does a lot of damage. So He says, count the cost uh, 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 ahead of time. A- and 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 don't make the decision uh, in, in a hurry. Really count the cost of finishing what it is that you're uh, beginning. And then he highlighted it with a second illustration, or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able, with his 10,000 man army, to meet someone coming against him with 20,000. Now that's a See, the stakes get higher and higher, don't they? So one is a a building. Okay, a building. All right. That's that's pretty serious in its own right. Going to war uh, without having counted the cost. Now, those stakes are a little bit higher. And so you would, before you tackle an army that was twice the size of your army, you would want to count the cost or else, while the other uh, with the greater force is still a great way, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. And so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so we are to uh, handle our decision to follow Christ, uh, with and, and give it the same sober assessment that a uh, a king or a general gives to heading out into battle in uh, in in a in a war, and so counting the cost. It's more than just this intellectual nod to uh, the, uh, to the importance of all of this, but it's actually making this kind of of a. Uh, commitment. And so very, very uh, challenging words. And then Jesus says, as he closes the whole section out here, salt is good. But if salt has lost its savor, how shall it be seasoned? And he calls Christians, we're the salt of the earth. Salt is a, is, has a distinctive taste to it. We are to have lives that are uh, distinctive uh, in, in the world. And if we don't have the distinction of uh, having this kind of a commitment to following him all the days of our life, uh, then... We become worthless as it relates to a witness for Him, and, uh, and even assault is uh, then worthless for anything, but, uh, but uh, not fit for the land or the dunghill, but men throw it out onto the ground. Uh, and, and so too, spiritually, we would become the same thing, uh, useless spiritually. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So you think about this, you think about this, Lord, that we have Worship today. You look at, and I, you hear these kind of things all the time. Where um, back when communism was really uh, a big thing, it's just what you've got: uh, Cuba, um, North Korea, and uh, Russia. Uh, I, maybe there's another communist state or two. But communism dominated a huge part of the world not that many uh, decades ago. It's a it's a marvel to me that people want to return. communism or socialism or some version of that when it collapsed before our very eyes uh, in our generation. Ah, but but the caveat is this. Uh, No, it'll work. The reason it didn't work before is because I didn't try it. I'm so much smarter than everyone else. But anyway, they, they would talk about Look at the commitment of these communists to a communistic, atheistic uh, ideal. And uh, do you as a Christian have that same uh, commitment? And I don't put the challenge down at all. And, uh, but today the same kind of thing is often made in reference to those that follow Allah or are in the Islamic religion. And uh, not that there's much of a choice because you can never leave it under the threat of death. Now, uh, uh, how, how, how would you ever look at a crowd of people and say these are genuine worshipers of, of anyone when it's all uh, there under the force of death? And Jesus doesn't come in and He doesn't call on us to make this kind of a commitment to Him under the threat of death. But in response of the love that He has shown us, which is an even greater motivation because of the greatness of the sacrifice that He has made for us and uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the greatness of what we have to respond to Uh, in Him. And so, our lives should maintain this kind of a distinctiveness for Him, certainly not become lukewarm or apostate or backslidden or anything else like that, which would be salt that has lost its savor. And then He goes, uh, as is the first word in uh, verse, uh, chapter 15, then all of the tax collectors and the sinners, they drew near to Jesus to hear Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Now that word then is the first word in, in chapter 15 is an interesting one, because these tax collectors and these sinners, they draw near to Jesus ever after having listened to him, give them uh, what is required to be a follower of his, a disciple of his. These very, very strong demands that are required and they in essence say, we've listened to you and we are uh, in. We count the cost. We want to be one of your followers. And his demands were so great and his discouragement, you know, against a casual kind of commitment uh, to him were so strong that you think it would have scared everyone off. But it didn't. And who didn't it scare off? Tax collectors and sinners. And tax collectors, of course, were greatly hated by the Jewish people by and large, certainly by the religious establishment, for their alignment with Rome in gathering taxes from Jewish people and sinners. These people were the low of the low in Jewish culture and certainly from the eyes of of Jewish religious leaders. And yet they were aware that they were sinners. They were aware they were despised by their fellow Jews. And they looked at it and they recognized, I am a sinner. I am in need of a Savior. This man is the Savior. And I make this commitment to follow Him whatever it will cost me to do so. And accounted a privilege to be able to do so. These demands, as I mentioned this morning, that Jesus makes of anyone that wants to become His disciples will never frighten off the right kind of person. They will never frighten off a man or a woman or a child who is under the conviction and the wooing and the drawing of the Holy Spirit to come to faith in Christ. They and we will be so eager for the forgiveness of our sins, so humbled by the idea that God would love us and that He would want to have a relationship uh, with us that uh, we will long to make this kind of a a commitment uh, to Him. And the funny thing is, is if you try to appease the Jewish religious leaders who we're going to read about, uh, we read about there in verse 2, you try to appease them and their prejudices against uh, sinners and tax collectors, and then you no longer target the sinners and the tax collectors, now you have nothing in terms of a harvest field. The Jewish religious leaders were not going to believe in Jesus no matter what he did. And yet, if he took their view of tax collectors and sinners rather than the view, God's view of tax collectors and sinners, he would have nothing to do with them either. And then, where does a tax collector and a sinner like you and I go in order to be saved and in order to have a relationship with God? Now, that is the group, and that group is in the world today because we're still sitting here because the fullness of the Gentiles hasn't come in yet, and the rapture of the church hasn't occurred as a result of that. Now, these people were uh, very, very eager uh, to uh, count this cost and to hear more from Him. Now, Jesus' willingness to receive these kind of people, and then uh, uh, here uh, to even eat with them, immediately criticized by the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees as they're they're named here. And they viewed, of course, tax collectors as like the scum of the earth, treason, uh, treasonous against the nation uh, of of Israel for collecting taxes on behalf of Rome. How they viewed sinners, and this refers to those Um, who uh, a sinner to them was someone who didn't live their life in accordance with uh, the law of God. And so in their mind, they had forfeited any chance of a relationship with God. And so these people in the mind of the Jewish religious leaders had put themselves beyond the reach of God and beyond the concern uh, of, uh, of God. And in fact, the Jewish religious leaders at that time, they looked forward to God's judgment of these kind of people in order to make an example of them. And that Jesus would not only associate with such people, but then eat with them was especially uh, galling uh, to, uh, 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 to them. It was more than than they could bear. And uh, by being there uh, and present there, wouldn't Jesus's presence kind of potentially be misunderstood is minimizing the seriousness of sin. You've got to separate yourself from tax collectors and sinners if they're ever going to know the seriousness of their sin. If you sit down and you eat with them, you're going to minimize their sin. They're never going to come to conviction related to their sin. It's separation. It's this kind of ostracizing that will be the great medicine that that they need. And so they felt uh, all of this Jesus eating with the sinners, it reflected very poorly uh, upon Him, disqualified Him as a Jewish rabbi or religious leader that would be taken seriously uh, by the Jewish nation and, uh, and because He clearly didn't understand how to represent a holy God in an unholy uh, world. Now, I think it's very important to... Notice the conditions which Jesus uh, was uh, receiving and eating with the sinners. Um, uh, He 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 didn't meet him in a casino. Uh, He he didn't meet him in a club, or he didn't go out partying with them and and tell them that their sin was no big deal. His contact with them was redemptive. He he was you you have to get around a doctor has to get around a sick person to be able to help them in spiritually the same way and so he was coming in and, and and being fully the spiritual obviously spiritual son of god that that he is but wanting to be an influence in in that Uh, in their lives, for them to see what God is like up close. He'd already called on them to count the cost in terms of of, uh, following him and becoming his disciples. And so here you have Jesus and you have these Jewish religious leaders who have two entirely different views of how to view sinners and tax collectors and to entirely different views about how God the Father views tax collectors and sinners, notorious sinners within, uh, within uh, the uh, the world. And so Jesus proceeded uh, to correct their misunderstanding of God, God's nature, of God's attitude towards sinners uh, with a series of, of three parables. And each one of these parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost sons. Uh, He he does uh, these three parables. Each of them are dominated by three great words. Lost, found, rejoice. That's what happens in heaven related to sinners being saved. Lost, found, and rejoice. And we'll see that as as we head through it. First, the parable of the lost sheep. And Jesus, uh, so Jesus spoke this parable to them, the Jewish religious leaders, not to the crowd. He said, "What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses, there's the word, right, loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? There's the second word." And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Lost, found, rejoice. And when he comes home, he calls his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And I say uh, 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 to you that likewise, Jesus says to the religious leaders, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who uh, need no uh, repentance. And so this was an image of a lost sheep and a shepherd going out to find a lost sheep. Very, very common. Everybody knew the imagery that Jesus was uh, talking about. And so all of us have probably lost something that's living like this in the course of our life. Maybe lose a child in the mall for five seconds or five minutes. Bit of a panic. You Ever lost a dog uh, at all? I thought I lost my dog this, uh, this week. We've got this little uh, poodle. And um, uh, we've, we're, he's the executor of our estate at this particular uh, uh, point in our lives. But we've got this little poodle that is w- wonderful, and uh, Karen w- went out, and, um, and so he was with me, and I was doing some different things, and I thought he was in the house and uh, fiddling around, and, and then I went to look for him. Couldn't find him anywhere in the house. I said, okay, well, he slipped out in the backyard. That's what's happened here. And so I went out in the backyard and looked everywhere. Couldn't find him. And so I'm looking all along the fence lines that he dig out to get out. And then Karen has a concern about him because he's kind of small. There's some kind of a pterodactyl or a a, a raptor is going to come down out of the sky and pick him up. And we'll see our little chip barking at us as he flies away. And uh, so that concern is now a part of my concern. I try to console her. I said, there's too many trees here. It's not going to have a good... A good line to to get away with our dog. But then I'm thinking, maybe she was right. (laughs) So now I gotta not only explain the death of my poodle, our poodle to her, but that she was right on that very uh, issue. So I open up the gate to go out in the front yard. There's no way he can be out in the front yard. No way he can be out in the front yard. He's just a little thing. The fences are so high. And I start to rattle the gate to go out there. What? And then I hear a barking. And when I inadvertently opened the garage for a nanosecond, he slipped out into the garage, the one place I didn't check. And so we got him and this entire scene was played out. In my heart. The finding of something that is lost. And so excited about it. I, I don't think I told Karen anything about this. No, I did. I told, she's hearing it just right now. But, um, but the excitement of, of that find. It's something that we, we all uh, understand. And Jesus informs these Jewish religious leaders that the great, uh, the great joy uh, that a shepherd feels in finding a lost sheep is but a hint of the joy that is experienced in heaven every single time an individual sinner becomes a Christian. That's something to think about, isn't it? Have you ever thought about the fact that at the nanosecond that you put your faith in Jesus Christ to be saved, that celebration broke out in heaven? That celebration broke out in heaven associated with you individually. That is how uh, heaven esteems a soul, the value of it, and a saved soul, whatever background that they or we uh, 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 come from. And so this portrayal, of course Jesus knows f- heaven firsthand. the religious leaders don't uh, at all, and this portrayal of of God's joy over the salvation of a sinner would have been mind-boggling for the Jewish uh, religious leaders. They, they had the attitude that God's attitude towards sinners was uh, that if any of them got saved, that all of heaven uh, would put out a collective groan over the fact that heaven is now going to be ruined by the introduction of, of this kind of a sinner. And that's how far out of touch the Jewish religious leaders were with, with heaven and with uh, the heart of God. Now, let me clarify one thing there in uh, verse 7 when he says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. And there he's talking about the Jewish religious leaders. But up in verse uh, 4, you notice that all of the sheep are, are they're all in the wilderness. They're not in the sheep pen. They're all in the wilderness. Uh, They're all uh, uh, away from home. In other words, Jesus is saying all 99 of them need to be saved. But the one who goes away from the 99 is the extraordinary sinner. Uh, The 99 sheep that stay in their place are the socially acceptable sinners. They are like the scribes and the Pharisees. They live a largely moral life, but it doesn't mean they're saved. They're still in need of salvation. But the one, that's the extraordinary uh, a sinner uh, that uh, that heaven goes out and to seek, even as Jesus was accepting the, the tax collectors and the sinners. And then he moves on to the parable of the lost coin. Or what woman... Uh, having ten silver coins, uh, if she loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house in its entirety, search carefully until she finds it. And so there's the losing of the coin, and when she has found it, there's the word, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice, there's the third word with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. And likewise I say to you, there is joy, in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so the same uh, attitude, the same reflection of, of heaven uh, toward the finding uh, of, of the lost. Now one of the interesting things is, is he's going to move on now to talk about the lost sons, but each of these things are lost in a, in a, uh, by means of a different way. So, the sheep gets lost, because he's stupid. Now, uh, uh, brutish in the King James, but stupid is used in the New King James. So, sheep are known as the dumbest animals, just about, in the animal kingdom. Uh, They will... Uh, they'll walk out not very far of a distance and if they lose sight of the shepherd and the rest of the herd they might as well be on Mars they have no idea how to get back no means of defending themselves so here is the person who gets lost because of their own stupidity and then you have the the coin that is lost. Here's a person who is lost and in a lost spiritual condition, and it's accidental. It wasn't something that they determined to do on purpose. It just, it, 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 they just ended up where they ended up in life as a sinner uh, uh, by accident. It may be raised by uh, parents that led them uh, into sin or whatever it, it might be. And uh, Jesus is saying that no matter how a person becomes a sinner uh, and where a person becomes a sinner, no matter how and where they become lost, they can all be saved in the same way. And then he picks up the third parable, the parable of the prodigal sons. And so he set the stage for this now with the first two parables. He's, a, he's captured uh, the, the minds, he's captured the imagination now of these Jewish religious leaders, and uh, with the theme of lost and, and found and rejoice, and he's done it in the realm of animals, he's done it in the realm of money, and Jesus now moves into uh, the far greater tragedy than an animal being lost or coin being lost, and that is to a human being uh, being lost. And he does this very, very deliberately as he he builds this case for how out of um, alignment the heart of these Jewish religious leaders who claim to represent God were with the actual heart of God towards sinners. And then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of those two sons said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Uh, Give me my uh, inheritance. Now, a father in the ancient world, it was completely lawful for him to give his inheritance to his children prior to his death. But no son would ever dream of asking for it before the father uh, would die. So when Jesus talks about here a younger son who goes to a father and wants his inheritance before the father dies, their jaws drop over this. This is astonishing disrespect. It's the kind of... Jesus has made this younger brother someone that in in a Jewish mind you would immediately dislike For his respect. What kind of a human being is that? Someone who says, I want the money I would get from you when you die, but I don't want to wait till you die to get that money. I want it now. I want what you have, but I don't want you. I mean, there's immediately the villain in the entire scene. There's nothing to respect about the actions of this this, uh, younger son. And then, uh, 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 wonderfully and graciously, or I'll say at least graciously, the father, he divided uh, to them his livelihood. And the younger son would receive a third of the father's estate. This man was very wealthy. He takes one third of what he has worked all of his life for, maybe generations of his family, and he gives one third of his total wealth to this disrespectful, awful little human being of a son that he has. And then, uh, as if it couldn't be any worse, not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, all of his wealth, and he journeyed to a far country, and there he wasted his possession with prodigal living, or just hyper-sinful living. Imagine blowing one-third of the wealth of the father that the father has worked for and belonged to him and he blows it on nonsense and sin and the idea is if you're listening this as a Jewish religious leader or as a Jewish person uh... is you look at that father and you say this guy has a right to never want anything to do with that son ever again, and that son represents the tax collector, and the sinner, and any and every sinner uh, in the world. And when he had spent all that he had, of course he didn't realize there are ups and downs in economies and this kind of thing, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And so, he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country, evidently a Gentile. Uh, He's left the land of Israel, and uh, this man gave him a job and sent him into his fields uh, to feed swine. So here you have a good Jewish boy, and the only job he can find is feeding pigs. And pigs are an unclean animal under Jewish law. You think it can't get any worse than this. Oh, but it does get worse than this. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one gave him anything. Imagine being so low and so hungry that what pigs are eating in a pigsty, that you would long to eat that if it hadn't been allocated to the pig's. Now that's, that's a low place in life. That's as low as a Jewish boy could ever, ever find uh, himself. And so here he is in this awful, awful kind of place and uh, we're told in verse 17, but when he came to himself, in other words, when he came to his senses, so he reassesses his situation now. He's not the Mr. Smarty Pants that he thought he was. He's not the big smart guy, smarter than his dad, smarter than God, that he thought he was sinner. And he begins to reassess the quality of life that his sin and his self-will has produced for him in contrast to the quality of life that he had in relationship with his father. And in assessing that, he has a change of mind about the decisions that he's made and he is then now determined to repent. Repent means to have a change of mind that produces a change of action. That's exactly what happens uh, here. And so he came to himself and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? When he talks about servants, you notice that he speaks about his father's hired servants. His, a hired servant was different than a regular servant. A regular servant would have been a servant who uh, was kind of a part of the household. Uh, they were kept on all year long for year after year after year. Here he's talking about the servants that would just be hired on a given day to come in. The lowest of the servants that worked on that father's estate. He said they've got it way better than than the life that my decisions have have, uh, led to. And I will arise and say, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. Don't even make me a servant. Just give me, make me a hired servant. That would be all the grace that I could ask of my father in the light of the shame that I've brought uh, to him and to his name. And so he works his speech out that he's going to approach God with, and then he, his father, and then he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father, uh, representing God in the parable, saw him, the sinner, and had compassion and ran to him, fell on his neck, and kissed him. I think some of you might remember uh, Benny Hester's song, way, way back when, when God ran. Beautiful, beautiful song that captures this, this whole picture. Now, in the ancient world, older people, uh, and especially older men, women too, but uh, an older man, a father like this, would never run. Because it wasn't, uh, you know, it just, it, wa- it wasn't respectful. It wasn't n- a noble way to carry yourself within the culture. Plus, if you've ever seen an older person run, you think, they shouldn't run. It just doesn't. I was talking to somebody, and they had watched some action film, and uh, And I said, well, what did you you think of it? And the star of the movie was someone who, when he was younger, he was quite an action star and all these things, but now he's like 75 and still playing the same roles. And uh, so the fight scenes are a little less convincing, Uh, my friend said uh, to that, because the wear and tear, the time, you don't run when when you're older the way you run when you're younger but here he the father throws at the sight of his son repenting and coming back to him he throws off all uh, uh, dignity here he loves his son runs to him falls on his neck and kisses him and then his son tries to get his speech out to his dad father i have sinned against heaven and in your sight and i'm no longer worthy to be called your son and then uh, he can't quite finish his speech before the father interrupts him the father said to his servants Bring out the best robe, probably one of the father's uh, own robes. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, probably the signet ring for the family, and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. Now, a fatted calf, a fatted calf uh, would have been enough to feed an entire village. So he's pulling out all the stops here, food wise. And, uh, and, and this is the thing you say for a special occasion. And what are they celebrating? Verse 24, what is the father celebrating? For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, there's the word, and is found, there is the word. And they began to be merry, there is the third word. Now, uh, there are two prodigals in the parable of the prodigal sons. There is the first uh, prodigal son, who engaged in the in the the uh, wasteful living, and then here is the older son who gets introduced at this point, and he represents the scribes and the Pharisees. He represents the self-righteous Jewish religious leaders, and so the older son was in the field, uh, obviously working hard, being a good a good son uh, to his father and as he came and he drew near to the house he heard music he heard dancing and so he called to one of the servants and he asked what's going on here what do these things mean and the servant said to him your brother has come and because he has received him safe and sound your father has killed the fatted calf and the the and the older brother said my younger brother is home hallelujah praise the Lord and made a beeline to him and hugged his neck no that's not that's not how he responded and that's not how the Jewish religious leaders by and large responded to the repentance of sinners in turning to God he was angry and he wouldn't go in He said, I I will not, I'm angry, and he's angry at his dad most of all. He's angry at God most of all. And I will not participate in this kind of thing, minimizing the importance of sin and the seriousness of sin by celebrating the return of a sinner without allowing him to stew in his own juices, so to speak, or bear the consequences of of his sin more fully than treating him uh, this way. And so his father hears about it a little bit, and uh, I hope stew in your own juices is not something profane. You'll forgive me uh, if it was. You know, you grow up with these sayings, and then... um, they come out, and then you realize, I don't have absolute clarity about, uh, about that. And so the father comes out, and I mean, imagine this. The father has to interrupt the celebration, and he came out and he pleaded with the older son. And so he answered and he said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you, I never transgressed your commandment at any time. I've been good, and yet you never gave me a young goat uh, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son, he will not even use his brother's name. That's how disgusted he is. As soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots? I mean, he, he's really troubled by the disrespect and the wastefulness of this son. He has devoured your livelihood, all of that hard earned money that belonged to you with harlots, and you killed the fatted calf for him. And he doesn't get it, he doesn't understand the heart of the father the same way the Jewish religious leaders claimed to represent God but did not understand his heart towards sinners. And so the father said to his son, representing the religious leaders, Son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. Son, the blessing, the blessing Of the obedient life that you have lived is to not get a fatted calf or to have a kid goat slaughtered so you can eat it with your friends the blessing is to know me and to walk with me the blessing is the relationship not what you can get out of the relationship and here is the older son who is, is in this place where he has stayed close to the Father in this way, but he doesn't realize how, blessed, how much more blessed he is than his younger son by virtue of the fact that he did not an, interrupt his relationship with the Father. It is the relationship that is everything, in, in all of this. But the older son can't get, th- get that. It's all about money, and it's all about livestock, and it's all about these physical things. And G- and, and here the father uh, speaks to him about the truly valuable thing between uh, him, uh, the father, and the son. And then he says, it was right that we should make merry. And, and, and there's that third word, and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And basically, the father is saying to uh, the son, Why do I have to come outside here and be drawn away from this celebration of the return of my son? Because Your heart is so far away from my heart toward wandering children and toward sinners and toward uh, tax collectors. And it's like the Father is saying to the Son, Won't you let me enjoy the joy that is mine when my children return to me so that that joy is not interrupted by your heart that is so far from mine. And that's the point that Jesus was making to the Jewish religious leaders, that here all of heaven was celebrating and does celebrate the repentance and the turning to God of any sinner, no matter how notorious. And yet instead of everyone being excited about that, God the Father has to deal with this attitude among the Jewish religious leaders. And again, exposing how different their hearts were toward sinners. You ever think about what kind of flack God took when he saved you? (laughs) my goodness. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the reason that God took me out of Napa and brought me to Modesto to be a pastor is because they know me over there. I went to school with all of these people and all. And to save me would have put a tremendous dent in God's reputation if His reputation was only for righteousness and holiness. And if in Christ, righteousness and holiness wouldn't be, couldn't be trumped by love when a sinner repents and turns to God. And so our lives bring glory to the Father uh, as we turn to Him in that way. And when people see that we are saved and for a while they look, people look and say, looks like God will save anyone. That's the point. That's the point. The Apostle Paul knew that was the point of his salvation so that people could look at how he sinned against God, sinned against the church so anyone would be able to look at him and say God will save anyone and for Paul's life to speak that kind of hope into people's lives. And so I I doubt in very many of our hearts here tonight that we have, I hope we don't, I would guess that we don't, that we would have a low view of notorious sinners in our community or in the world because of the recognition of how much grace God has shown us and how much forgiveness He has brought into our lives that when we see anyone get saved that we rejoice in it. I remember years ago when Jeffrey Dahmer, how low can you go? Here's a guy who takes in homosexual lovers, kills them, and parts them out, and then eats their vital organs, later at his leisure. A monster, an absolute monster, was so from his childhood, and yet he gets into prison, he becomes a Christian, he walks with Christ all of the days that he is in prison, and then finally someone gets him alone, and... uh, bashes his brains in in the prison and he never put up a fight at all in that and his life had been changed and there's these stories over and over and over again and I never blink at it to me it's a hallelujah and I think all of us but for the grace of God there go I if opportunity to sin or the environment in which I was raised in was uh, different than the one that I was, or I had different teachers than the one that I was, any of us are capable of just about uh, anything. And so we rejoice in anyone that gets saved. And that's the heart of the Father. But we want to be careful because of that tendency. I'm just about done. I see the clock. But we want to be careful of the tendency that sometimes once we get saved and then God begins to clean us up a little bit, then we start to look around and say, I think God ought to tighten up the standard a little bit around here. And we're on our way toward becoming scribes and Pharisees. This is the heart of God. Hallelujah. None of us would be saved if it wasn't. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank You tonight for our salvation. We thank You for Your heart, so far and so infinitely superior and higher than even the heart of religious people towards sinners. We thank You tonight for our salvation. We thank You for the celebration that occurred when we turned to You. We thank You for Your willingness to associate Yourself with people like us. We thank You, Lord, for those of us who were raised for a little time in the church and are growing up but never quite made a commitment. And we went off and we did our own thing, thought we were smarter than You, smarter than everyone else. And You never let go until we realized that we never had it so good as when we were around the things of You and were able to turn to You. Thank You for Your grace, Lord. Amazing grace, indescribable, multifaceted grace. We bless you, Lord. We honor you. We thank you. We praise you tonight for it, your heart toward sinners. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.